Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about the short story House of Ancestors, which was originally published in the 1968 sci fi anthology If. And reprinted in the story collection Endangered Species. In House of Ancestors, Gene Wolfe imagines what would happen if we came face to face with our unconscious desires, our inherited genetic predispositions, and our innate characteristics. It's, there's a lot going on in this story. <laughs> yeah, there might be too much going on yeah, in I, this story. I think story. so. Uh, this, this story was published not too much uh, beyond a decade after DNA research really took off. I don't think Gene Wolfe had too much to work with regarding its ostensible main topic, which is DNA. But it is stuffed with numerous story elements, including advanced robotics, the history of evolutionary theory, and there is a heavy dose of Freudian psychology. Um, The story takes place in 1991 at the New York City World's Fair. And I think that's enough background to kind of get us going. Glenn, why don't we... uh, why don't you take us through the story, and we'll discuss some of the elements afterwards with a bit of context. Yeah, sounds great to me. The eye of the telescope looked upward giddy miles to where the last sphere, its sides pierced with yawning holes, swayed above the city. A teacher from Baton Rouge had paid her quarter, looked, and left a moment before. A man from Des Moines would come soon, but he would be too late. For a few seconds, a figure stood at one of those holes, then another who struggled with him, then both were gone. That's the opening paragraph of House of Ancestors. And Brandon, I think it does uh, a really amazing job of building the world and setting the stage for this story. Uh, There are, you know, sort of just a few clues here uh, in what's happening, right? We see right away there are technological spheres in the sky over an American city, and we don't know exactly what they are yet. Maybe they're alien spaceships. Maybe it's a new floating apartment complex, or maybe it's something else entirely. (laughs) My notes on this uh, paragraph are, uh, this paragraph would make a great writing prompt for somebody who's trying to write Mm -hmm. kind of a story. I I think we'll see as we go through the story that this paragraph doesn't really tell us, give us, it's a start to a different story than the one we get. Sure. And I will say, you know, one of the reasons that we're spending so much time on this par- one paragraph, this opening paragraph here in our plot recap is because I thought this was the best part of the story. Uh, I think it was a better story than the the actual story that we get as we'll, we'll get to here in a moment. Yeah, it feels uh, like he was driving in his car. And had this great paragraph kind of pop into his head and jot it down. And then mm-hmm. he needed to publish something. So he just yeah. put it in front of a story. <laughs> so we should, we, should, we should make it clear to listeners right now that, that this, this opening paragraph is actually a prologue. It's not the story. It's a prologue to the story, House yeah. of Ancestors. It's, it's in the edition that we read in Endangered Species. It's italicized and it's, it's set off from the body of the story. And so we're really meant to understand as readers that, that the rest of the story, the story that Wolf is actually going to tell us after this paragraph, is, is about the men who are fighting each other in the spheres so high in the sky. Right? He's going to explicate that last line right um and uh, so you're right to point out it does kind of feel like a writing prompt in fact actually i would uh, i'd like to invite listeners to 
take that writing prompt challenge and write their own story yeah, from that prompt and, and send it into us. Give us a story, yeah. yeah. I'd love to, we'll I'd love to read that story. If it's, you know, 1,500 words or less. <laughs> right. Can't promise we'll do a whole episode talking <laughs> right, about your right. story, but we'd love, we'd love to read them. So yeah. head on over to the forums and uh, or drop us an email. We'd love, we'd love to see it. So our main narrative begins on the New York City subway. Joe and his pregnant wife, Bonnie, are on their way to the 1991 New York World's Fair, and they're going to see these fears, which Joe thinks of as the thing, which uh, sounds pretty ominous and menacing. Yes, definitely. We get the thing for for quite a while. Um, to what effect, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, other than to obscure what the characters are actually going to do. Yeah, that's right. This is, I mean, this is world building here. You know, Wolf here is, is doing some of the things that he does so well, which is to tell us about the world through his characters in their voice, uh, rather than as an omniscient narrator who's ex- right. explicating or explaining some cool fantasy world he's invented to us. So that's really great. So on the, on the subway, we discover, we learn that Joe is a tough guy. He's a construction worker, and he's he's described by reference to the ethnic categories that mattered so much to urban Americans in the 20th century. And we learn that he's ready to fight anyone who looks at his wife funny. Yeah, there's th- th- there's a little bit too much time spent on Joe early on in this story. Uh, I, I get that we're... Well, he is the protagonist. He's the protagonist. Sometimes, That's fair. sometimes authors spend a lot sometimes of time on their protagonist. You need to spend time on the protagonist. There's an awful lot of kind of scaffolding being put into place is what I'm saying that, that that kind of doesn't lead anywhere necessarily a lot of words to describe to us the reader that Joe is willing to step to anybody mm-hmm. who who looks at him funny on the subway and not for any reason the problem it here's what it is it's unmotivated and undirected anger and and we're not really ever given in my opinion a clear reason why Joe is like this in in the story mm-hmm. and so I feel like Joe Joe is walking us through the plot as a protagonist but and and we're supposed to learn a lesson with joe about life as we'll get to um but it's it feels very unmotivated to me uh it does feel unmotivated i think that wolf here though is working with a a type a type that exists as as a literary trope but that also bears some resemblance to the reality of um, being a construction worker in New York City in 1968, or in, as I will say, in my, from my own family's history, in Chicago in 1968. I know these people. I've, yeah. you know, I've been to these parties with these people. Definitely. But for the amount of time we spend with him um, throughout this story, and, and the amount of psychology that we're meant to engage with in this story, yeah. we're not given clear character motivations for Joe, other than he's just kind of an angry young man. Yeah, I think that the anger, and, and we'll, I'll get on with the recap here in a minute, but I think that the the you know the, the anger is what we're being shown here. That the, the anger is what's going to get resolved in the plot. Absolutely. And, and the anger, I mean, you know, so it is, unmo- it does maybe seem to be unmotivated in, in the sense that the narrator doesn't, doesn't, give us a direct and immediate motivation for Joe wanting to confront some people on the subway. But we learn here very, uh, very quickly right away that Joe is unwell, right? We learn that his heart has been damaged in a construction accident that left uh, a nail in his heart. And, uh, his wife, Bonnie wants him to have it removed so he can heal all the way. But, but Joe has some vague reasons for refusing the surgery uh, that have something to do with workers' compensation and life insurance. Um, being and worth more dead than alive. Being worth more dead than alive. And I think that we're meant to see here that Joe just has a real general kind of anger towards the world because this this crazy thing has happened to him and he doesn't know how to be the person he wants to be anymore. See, 
Sure, you can say that. Right. It's not in the but text. But it's not in the text. No, There's you're, you're no right. clear picture of who Joe wants to be. We we get a sense of what Joe ought to believe, but not why he should have those goals. Other, it's This is a kind of a morality tale. Joe's our every man. Mm-hmm. And it's not a morality tale that that works for me. All right. Well, let's get back to yes, yes. The, the thing, the yes. science fiction element of the story that we're all here for. We learned that Bonnie's brother, Chuck, works for a plastics company that has been a part of constructing the spheres that float high above New York City, and that he's arranged a special tour for his family before the thing opens to the public. And uh, through some uncharacteristically clumsy exposition, uh, we learned that the thing is a replica of a strand of DNA, a, a molecular model on a massive scale that's floating thousands of feet in the air. And um, there's there's also... A lot of detail here about how such an enterprise was possible, and I think um, this is maybe one of the first times that I've really noticed Wolf's engineering background come through so explicitly in one of his stories. Yeah. I mean, it comes through in his concern about robots, which is going to show up here in this story as well, and and other types of machines, but this just didn't feel like storytelling so much as it felt like he actually was describing a plan he that he himself had hatched. Building a double helix from the ground up. That uh, is at least twelve hundred plus feet. Yes, high. I mean, yeah, it's, it's right. over the height of the Empire State. Yeah, building. taller, yeah. taller than the Empire State Building, way above the Empire State Building. We learn, uh, and but I think that you pointed out, Brandon, earlier that, um, and 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 rightly so, that the whole idea of the double helix, the DNA strands, was new enough. Uh, yeah, you know, in 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 1968, when Wolf was writing this story, or when the story was published, perhaps it might have been I mean, written years there was earlier. No, there was no internet back then. You right, have to remember. Right. So when articles got published, unless Wolf was uh, reading a scientific journal or something to that effect, this would be popular news. He's getting this information. From, yeah. So he also the library. So he sp- also spends a lot of time really explaining sort of what DNA is, what it looks like, its its structure as a double helix. That's um, right. All of which felt very tired to to me as a reader. But, you know, putting myself uh, as a reader of a magazine or this anthology, if in 1968, I think this probably might have been new to me and would have been really It might have been so. really cool. The same way if you put on like a, you know, great album from the 70s and it's all kind of music tropes you're used to but like you can imagine yourself as a teenager listening to it for the first time yeah there's maybe something to it side note uh road trip we just big road trip that we just took out to yellowstone uh i listened for the very first time to a Joni mitchell record the whole way through didn't like it uh because it because it felt tired i've heard it all before right but i can understand that it was new it was brand new when it came out and would have been revolutionary so yeah that's the exact same thing you're pointing to so all right let's get on with our story As Joe and company are entering the thing, something is wrong with the door. Um, uh, The others go off to get some help, but Joe, who is slowed down because of his heart, he remains behind, and he tries the door himself, and he discovers that he can pull it open, and so he goes into the thing uh, all by himself. And as he's wandering around, we, the reader, discover that the thing is essentially a museum about the science of genetics, and it's it's staffed by robots. It's it's basically DNA Disneyland. Or DNA Jurassic Park. There's uh, no dinosaurs. No dinosaurs. So but you get yeah, yeah. Mendel. It's DNA and Park. Darwin and you yeah, know, and Lamarck and and, Lamarck, uh, yeah. and and maybe one or two others. So. Um, I, I do want to point out that uh, Joe is excessively bitter that people leave him behind um, and kind of forget about his heart condition. And and this is maybe the only insight we have into Joe's real 
uh, attitude of anger towards the world is is this bitterness he feels that they all forget about his heart condition immediately after spending about 14,000 words talking about it. Yes, I, that, that, that's absolutely true. So the, the first exhibit that, that Joe finds here is um, something that really kind of sets the stage for the, the, the museum, right? There's uh, mutated fruit flies and chicken eggs, uh, and the, the robot docent has a speech about recapitulation theory, which is the not-quite-right notion that animal embryos go through all the stages of their species' evolution before being born. But, right. uh, you know, in 1968, people thought this was a real thing. Uh, we know we know differently now. Uh, the docent goes on to explain that each person is made of genetic material inherited from his or her parents, and it's it's interesting to see, right? As we talked about, that 1968, this needs to be spelled out for readers, right? Even readers of science fiction, and that I did find right. sort of interesting. Um, but but most importantly, uh, this is going to be uh, significant for the plot device that will resolve the issue of Joe's damaged heart by, yes, the, by yes. the end of the end of the tale and his anger, perhaps, and his anger. The two things uh, might might be related, and in fact, one. Might go so far as to say that the real damage to Joe's heart is not the nail. Yeah, it's yeah. the anger. One might say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Joe travels up the thing and onto the next exhibit hall, uh, where he talks with an animatronic Gregor Mendel. Yes, I, I actually this is the one part of the story that I really liked uh, quite a lot. This section with Mendel is is terrific and kind of the mandela you can you can see in the story gene wolf's affinity for priests yes uh, and yep. the clergy in general because he mandela's the kind of the most sympathetic character it's a fun little puzzle he gives us though it's easy to decipher it's mm-hmm. still still wolfy it feels like gene wolf this yes section. Yeah, so what happens here, as you allude to brandon when we get to gregor mandela we discover that joe is no longer alone on his tour, a young woman has joined him, and and Gregor Mendel says that there was a another man ahead of Joe who raced through the exhibit, um, and and through some really great descriptive clues, we infer that the woman who has joined Joe is not real; that she's a robot version of his mother at the moment of of Joe's conception. And yeah, this is this is the part I think that you really liked the most. Were, were these clues? Well, well the, those clues are very good, though. That I think um, the kind of keeping. The revelation about Joe's mother is from us is um, a little heavy-handed. It doesn't need to be done, but it does point to other ways that Wolf talks about characters and their mothers later on in his in his fiction. This kind of odd f- sense of familiarity uh, we get with Joe hearing his mother's voice uh, when she was just a young girl, maybe, yeah, maybe eighteen or nineteen or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, just the way she's dressed, he can infer she's a little, little old fashioned. Yeah, and something he's, about he's the skirt. So there would have been like Gene Wolfe predicting fashion trends in the <laughs> in the seventies, um, which is a lot of fun. But no, what I really love and what I'd like to read um, is the section about Joe's mother, who we don't know is his mother officially at this point in the story, urging Joe to ask a blessing of of Mendel. So. He does. He he asks uh, Mendel for a blessing, and it's a bit of a lengthy section. But I, I'd really like to read it because to me this is a a good, good part of the story that shows a real sense of what this story is. Yeah, like it's for, it's the best people. it's the best part of the story for yes. sure. Um, so Joe just has asked for a blessing. He says, "Bless me, Father." An expression of bewilderment passed over Mendel's face. "Are you Catholic, my son?" he asked. "Does that matter?" Couldn't you give me your blessing anyway? I suppose it doesn't really, Mendel said, and no, I couldn't. 
He reached down and drew Joe to his feet again. This is like the story, he continued in his mild voice. They used to tell us about one of the Emperor Franz Joseph's visits to Baden. They were going to perform one of the operas based on Goethe's Faust for him. And when one of the emperor's courtiers, uh, courtiers brought his little daughter behind the scenes in the theater, she saw an actor dressed as the Pope and asked for his blessing. Mary Hogan, who is uh, Joe's mother, asked curiously, and did he bless her? Mendel shook his head. He explained that he was only a make-believe Pope. And when she understood, she said, then bless my doll. Just so, I cannot bless this young man, my daughter, but I will bless you. And then Joe wonders why he would bless the other person, not him. And, and, and right. none of this we're officially told is, is robotics yet. Yes. But this right. is our first hint that there's a game afoot, mm-hmm. at least in, in the storytelling. Yeah. And one of the things that's, well, maybe I'll save it for a discussion, but I did, I did like this moment quite a bit because I think we see just in this one scene, as you already pointed out, uh, almost the whole... Uh, program of Gene Wolfe's uh, attitude, uh, um, uh, discussion, exploration of of robots and souls, and the relationship uh, between uh, biological and mechanical creatures uh, between themselves, but also the, the, each of those types of creature and and God and the Creator. Yes, um, yeah. and uh, it's 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 right here, and I think maybe we'll explicate that um, when we get get to the end of the story. So in the in the next exhibit, uh, they encounter the man who has raced ahead of them. And in the next exhibit, they encounter the man who has raced ahead of them. And Joe senses a malice unfathomable in him before he rushes on ahead again. In this exhibit, they meet a robot Lamarck whose hand has been chopped off by this malicious man. And uh, they're joined now by a second woman whom we are able to infer is Joe's grandmother, even yes. if, you know, Joe himself continues to remain ignorant that these women are robots, uh, robot versions of women he actually knows. Right. And, and, and in this section, we're also given, you know, what might be like the third plot thread in this story, but is actually the first hint that the prologue has anything to do with this tale um, of a mark uh, has a stump for a hand because yes. the, the 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 man ahead of him has hit it off with some kind of steel rebar or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, clearly. And, I mean, uh, I don't know about you, Brandon, but I could not read this without thinking of Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure George Lucas read this story. Yeah, yeah, he he may have though. all of Star it's, Wars motivated really, yeah, by this one story. By this one story. Um, but Lamarck uh, says uh, there may be a vandal in the complex, and this is kind of the first hint that there's kind of a second game afoot. And we're, 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 there's quite a lot going on in this story, and, and a lot more gets introduced later. I think there's probably up to three or four plot threads in this story that need to be resolved by the time Joe, our everyman, learns his lesson and and uh, resolves his moral uh, kind of issue. Um I also want to make give a note about Lamarck uh, for our readers who may not know um, that he put forth the belief um, that an organism can pass off characteristics acquired during its lifetime to its offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically people use and, and or ignore certain characteristics they're given at birth. This is the innate characteristics and they either discard them um, throughout their lifetime through lack of use, and they pass on the characteristics they've acquired throughout their lifetime. And this is, um, we're told in this Lamarck section, as I'm sure you'll get to, that uh, Lamarck gets cut off and um, <laughs> somebody says, like, this is the main p- 
point of the whole story. Yes, right. And this is a classic wolf game <laughs> yeah. that's like, I-, I won't reveal the information to you here. You'll have to kind of figure it out for yourself. Though, in this story, it's early enough in Wolf's career. Uh, he's a young enough writer that he does reveal kind of the Lamarckian thing by the end of the story. He, he does. He does. Yeah. The um. So yeah, we're finding out about the Vandal here, and 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 Joe wants to go after this Vandal, and and that's also what his mother, his robot mother, wants him to do. Which I have to say, I just thought was a little bit strange. I don't know that if I were in a museum. Uh, with some people and there was somebody vandalizing it several exhibits ahead that I would chase after that person. Might you think of Oedipus in this moment? Uh, yes, I think I might. In <laughs> fact, I think that's exactly what's what's going on here. Uh, it yeah, just, the, the, the kind of uh, to to kind of secure the love of his mother. He's, right. He's, has to go. By this time, we're realizing the Vandal may be some primitive version of himself or his father or, so, or some, his, something like his, that yeah these inherited characteristics of anger that have been passed down to him yeah and we will shortly find out that that's that that is exactly what's going on so 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 joe's trying to go after the vandal but the the robot lamarck wants wants um to receive guidance from his superiors he wants to give joe advice that he's going to get from his own superiors so um he tells us uh, that when no programmers are present, the master computer is the highest authority, and this is a real some some what will become classic uh, wolfiness. Yes, um, and and that's really really quite great. And and Joe agrees to abide by the decision of the master computer, but as soon as Robot Lamarck disappears to go ask the computer, Joe takes off after the malicious vandal and. Um, we find that the next exhibit is devoted to Darwin. And Wolf gives us, um, I think, some really comical imagery here of a, a broken robot Darwin lying smashed on the ground while yeah. a Galapagos tortoise robot is nosing, nosing around yeah, uh, the I think, wreckage. I mean, whether this is Wolf in, intruding as an author or not, it seems to him as though like Lamarck, Lamarck's ideas, he, he, he likes a lot better than uh, Darwin's when it comes to this kind of history of evolution we're given in this in this story. Yeah, I mean, there there might be an interesting way to read that, though. I think that, the, that these people are just being presented chronologically, and that the violence yeah. has to escalate. Yes, um, yes. But there might be there might be something to that. Um, but the, the crux of this scene is that the Vandal is here, and he's not going to let Joe follow him anymore. So the, the Vandal hurls a sharp piece of metal at Joe, and then races further into the museum. Yes. Joe gives pursuit until they reach the last atom of the thing, and uh, this one is is still under construction. And um, in fact, here is where we see that the Vandal has begun to rip holes into the walls, revealing the open sky thousands of feet above the ground. And I think we we realize right away, right, that we are we are now on the stage that that um, the man from Baton Rouge and the school teacher right. have um, witnessed witnessed from yeah. afar. And uh, some there's an interesting detail here that um, now. Hundreds of women join Joe and the Vandal in this last atom. Joe rushes the Vandal to fight him. And here Joe realizes that the Vandal is also a robot. A robot with Joe's own face. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. If you imagine reading this and like all this stuff is brand new in the science fiction scene. And it's I mean Gene Wolfe is still doing something interesting here for 1967 oh absolutely yeah. I'm, I'm gonna tell you again brandon this scene i completely thought of the scene in empire strikes back when luke goes into the cave to fight the fantasy version of darth vader and discovers it's him inside the suit the whole right, time right i i do believe george lucas read this story <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's certainly part of like the the monomyth and and all this stuff that you know the the, the you know the, the kind of shedding of the f- the far the dark father 
within us in order to achieve our own liberation. And and this is it's not a whole lot of whole lot of psycho analysis psychoanalytic theory in this whole story it's true they might they might both be drawing on the same source material though i will say i think wolf might actually be drawing on the source material lucas is drawing on kind of a pop culture version of the (laughs) source material yeah Uh, but i still maintain lucas might have read this story when i ever when i get a chance to interview george lucas this is going to be the first question i ask him (laughs) george lucas how much gene Gene wolf Wolf have you read (laughs) yes So Joe tries to kill the robot version of himself with a metal spike that's not unlike the nail that's lodged in his own heart. Might, might it be, be just a larger representation of a microscope or like a very small object? Yes. I believe this might be fraught with uh, symbolic significance. <laughs> I see. Um, but at this moment, Joe's robot mother intervenes. She explains to Joe that she is a robot, which the rest of us knew uh, about 20 pages ago, and that all the other women are robot versions of his ancestors, created by the museum, which had read his DNA when he entered. And she further explains that Joe is full of self-loathing and has a death wish, and through some, I don't know, kind of hand-waving, indicates that if Joe kills the robot version of himself, he will also die. Yeah, and it's odd because this self-image of Joe is not an ancestor, no, it's, it's just a Joe. product of his own innate characteristics. And I, I do want to read this uh, section where we get closure on the open, uh, the loose end of the Lamarck section that leaves us hanging a little bit. His mother says, Mary Hogan says, but recently we discovered that Lamarck was correct in certain respects. Every characteristic as it exists at conception is to some extent transmitted to the new generation. That's what he was supposed to explain to you in his Adam. He goes a step too far there by telling us, like, like you know, turning on the flashers and saying, you know, this is important, um, which is a habit he gets away from. I think it's just interesting in these early stories to see Wolf really develop. And, and also interesting, who knows when he wrote this? He, we know when it was published. Right. But when it was written is, yeah. you know, a big... And this feels... This feels very early. It feels juvenile to me, yeah. honestly. I mean, not juvenile. That's not quite right. But but uh, juvenile in terms of his authorial self. Yes. Uh, the very young years of his writing. To me... Joe was you know, a very young character. Yes, Joe's a very young character. Seems to have maybe some of the concerns that... that, that uh, someone who ha- doesn't have children yet, but is about to have have them, would unlike Wolf, who's on I don't know, child three or four, I think already by the time that this story yeah. is published. But I will say, you know, coming off of of, of Trip Trap last week, which I thought was. Um, really, I thought it was a masterpiece of a story. Probably not a masterpiece of a wolf story, but was definitely a masterpiece of a, a science fiction very story. Good Robert E. Howard story. Yes. You know. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Take but, it to the next level. But it was an awesome story, and I loved. It, I loved it. Loved I, every I second of it. Read yeah. it four or five times for our episode last week. This story I did not read four or five times just for my own amusement. This felt like this predated. Uh, trip trap for yeah. sure, um, but which let's, can, let's, which can let's, happen. I mean, you you have stuff in the trunk, and, of and the publishers asking, and you just got your name out there, and so you just edit what you have written. I've done that, yes. you know, with stories. Right. You, you look at it and you say, uh, th- uh, "It's been long enough. I can edit this." And what you didn't realize is that this story never worked to begin with. Yes, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, okay, let's let's finish the, this the story up, the plot here for the audience, and then we'll then we'll get in our discussion. So, Indeed. ultimately, Joe does not destroy his robot self. He listens to his robot mom and and doesn't kill his robot self. And when Bonnie finally joins him in the museum, he tells her that he's decided to have the surgery that will repair his heart. And uh, so Joe has. Yeah. Learned something. He's let go it's of his anger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and this is this is uh, kind of what's part of what's really puzzling 
to me about this story. Let me just read this Mary Hogan explanation of the death wish, which is going to maybe factor into some of our conversation. Yes, which I, I kind of just described as hand-waving. It, it is indeed hand-waving, and, and listener, please discover why. She says uh, he's about to kill his self-image, right? And, and, and his mother says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Why not? Your death wish is strong now. I can only guess what destroying an image of yourself will do to it. You've been using that metal thing to hold him down. Look at your own chest. And he realizes that this steel shard is poking into his heart. And so that there's some symmetry here in the the action of himself. He'd kind of also be at least lacerating his, his himself, if not puncturing his heart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's, that's the, that's the story. Um, and I think we've answered this question, but it's my my kind of opening gambit for questions that I love to ask. And listeners, maybe uh, you'll wish me f- for me to change it in the coming weeks. But Glenn, <laughs> you can uh, email us and let us know. <laughs> let us know. Uh, Glenn, did the story work for you? It definitely did not work for me. I think as I really was saying and talking about Trip Trap, Trip Trap worked for me very much and I loved it. This story actually felt like kind of a letdown or maybe not a letdown, but a come down from, from the high that I had reading trip trap where I was shocked and pleasantly surprised that trip trap was so good. I thought I had not read before Gene Wolfe's first professional publication. Uh, there's no way it's going to be great because it's his first professional publication. Yeah. I would say the same about any author, uh, was really surprised to discover that I thought it was one of the best stories that I've ever read. Um, and, that kind of gave me a false sense of security it's, going it's into this story. right? In, yeah. in Trip Trap, as we discussed uh, last week, there are sophisticated literary devices at yes. play. Yes, the, the narrative um, is complex. A, it's a frame story, which is very difficult to pull yes. off. And even though it is derivative of kind of earlier people of his influences, it is uh, a kind of step beyond them. It is. And it, it, it does a lot more with uh, narrative devices than I think really any of the influences that he's working with have done. And so I was went into House of Ancestors here, of course, expecting, well, it's going to at least be the same and might even be better and really felt that this was a much lesser work. I, I, don't I think- really think we can say, from our point of view, this story as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, it was probably written a little bit earlier and, and he, he kind of polished it up for publication. Yeah, I agree. That's probably true. And I will say that, 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 you know, there was a lot in this story that I found very interesting. We see um, some, some real, some hallmarks of, of, of topics uh, and approaches that Wolf is going to address and that Wolf is going to use later in his work. For instance, uh, like the use of the story within the story to kind of give us the real meaning of reality. Uh, this is the Mendel story. Yes, which for right. Me was was you know the best part of the story because it felt the most like Wolf. Yeah, it did, and and that scene in particular um, really felt sort of like the wolfiest bit of this of this story. Yes, in yes. that um, we're, we're we are learning here. Or at least, maybe not learning, but we're at least broaching the the question here of whether or not robots are people, uh, whether or right. not a machine that a human has created, no matter how much it emulates human intelligence, can be uh, well, ensouled or not. Advanced to the point of indistinguishability. I mean, Joe immediately mm-hmm. recognizes the first robot. Yep. 
But only because and, I think there's context there where he's expecting a robot, right? right? And then the, the ones later on... Um, he doesn't see he doesn't, that his mother's a robot not or, right or his away. grandmother. Not right. right away. So, yeah, I think, I mean, that kind of leads into my, my next topic of discussion for the three things I, I brought up in, in, in my introduction here is the elements of the story, the advanced robotics, and I, I'd include in that kind of the whole museum here. The history of the evolutionary theory, uh, which we may not want to discuss too much, and, and the Freud in this story. So yeah, though those things do seem to be really important to Wolf in, in writing the story. Yeah, I, I, the psychoanalytic stuff really. I mean, it's 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 muddled to me, and it kind of combats the technology in the story in a way. Um, and I'll I'll try to get to that in a yeah. moment. Well, but, let's start where you want to start. Yeah. So Glenn. Did you find the function of the building plausible at all? Like what the build this museum, this huge building. So in my understanding, we're working with a building that's over twelve hundred feet tall. Yeah. It's the main exhibit of the World's Fair in, in, in for ninety one, uh, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you know, twenty five years or yeah. ish after Wolf he's imagining the future, the next great world's fair. Um and uh people have to move through the levels of this building on on steep conveyor belts right that's their main means of m- movement that up seemed, the stories yeah so i don't know if you've ever been to the top of the empire state building i have yeah you would not want to take a conveyor a series of conveyor, right, belts, the conveyor belts seem to be outside of the structure at least yeah. that was how i read it well joe also remarks on how steep they are yeah like he's shocked a, yeah. a little bit so they're, they're almost like yeah. i mean i can't even imagine what the grade is there uh-huh. to, to move about six exhibits to the top um I, i'm being nitpicky here and maybe a little cruel but uh also, it's also maybe designed to only have three or four hundred people in it at a given time, where these office buildings hold tens of thousands of people. So, I, I just want to discuss this a little bit. I want to hear kind of what your thoughts are. There have to be enough robots. The the thing is designed for there to be enough robots, maybe per person or maybe per group, mm-hmm. one to join to kind of maybe at least be a representation of what they're doing yeah. with this exhibit yeah. and, and the Lamarckian inheritance of characteristics. What are your thoughts on this? And, and what wh- you remarked early on um, that Wolf was kind of revealing his m- mechanical engineering side. Right. And I, think I mean, he that's does right. tell us how to build it. I think yeah. we should try. Yeah. With yeah. special glue. Um, <laughs> special, yes. Special glue. I think. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think what you're getting at, Brandon is, is, you know, does, you know the question sort of about about this the building itself seems real unbelievable i think and maybe is sort of the sense i'm getting from you um and you're right it does seem real unbelievable which is maybe in part why wolf needs to give us i don't know three paragraphs explaining how it actually could work but there is you know these world fairs there's there is a tradition in at the world's fair of constructing an edifice that shows off all of the great technological advancements that have come since the previous World's Fair and that your specific uh, 
you know, institution, agency, enterprise, firm, company is capable of doing. And so we see that it's the plastics company here has done this. Um, you know, I don't know. I've, I've lived in, in a city that ha- hosted, uh, two cities actually, that have hosted World Fairs. And they've still got like the cool building that was constructed. It's still there. It's still a tourist destination. So the impetus to do that rings true. It's, uh, I think Agreed. Wolf is aware of this. Um, you know, I think Wolf, this might just be a case of it probably shouldn't have been 1991. It might, it should, you know, because that's maybe it seems a little laughable because we know that we weren't aren't in tw- sitting here in 2017 that we're not about to construct that sort of thing. Right. But I think that, um, I think that it is well, certainly the mo- the mo- no monuments to science have really come our way at all. Well, uh, that is true. But I yeah. do think that so in that sense, I think that us sitting here in the Back to the Future Part Two dystopia that is 2017 <laughs> think that this is a wholly unrealistic future. But I think that um, in the optimism that was that existed in the 1960s that star trek is happening right now while this is going on well you have Uh, the the utopia that science brings and here and and that's that's what we're seeing in this way this story is an interesting kind of questioning to that potential utopia that science could bring here we have a man who has an opportunity to have um open heart surgery to remove a nail that may kill him and uh is that's his excuse for not getting it because if he's going to die he might as well have his wife have workers comp and then die i mean that's true today it's true it is true today that, yes yes um, but we have advanced robotics to the point where they can instantly mimic you know the the hereditary characteristics of your ancestors and and make them plausible but nothing like advanced robotics for medical science. Right. I think that it's fair to say that 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 these sort of that, that that yeah, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the the optimism of of science that Wolf is um, pointing to here definitely could be about being able to build real cool stuff. Uh, yeah. but does it mean that there are going to be advances in the way that we treat workers? Um, yeah, which which frankly Look, is true. Is... We can do a lot of cool stuff, uh, technological stuff. This podcast that we're doing right now exists because of cool technological stuff that's happened since Wolf wrote Until we this get story. Hit with the solar flare. Um, workers still not treated that well. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. And I think Wolf is super aware of this, uh, which is interesting. Theme I've come across reading his stories is kind of this real questioning of the potentials that capitalism, the free market. And adv- and progress progressivism in general can really offer us. Um, so that I mean, yeah, I, I read I think read one way that that this story can be put in conversation with the kind of prevailing ideas about where science was leading: more leisure, a better work week. But here we have massive construction um, just for showing off. Yeah, I'll say that that was a thing that. You know that I hadn't quite observed while reading the story, so I'm really grateful that you've pointed that out. I hadn't quite seen that there was maybe that um, incongruity of technological advancement with with social stagnation, perhaps. Yeah, um, that there is a bit of a of, perhaps of, of dystopia happening there. I think Gene Wolfe does this clearer in other places, and I'm at a loss right now to to tell you the story where that kind of really clicked for me. But I. I think if we keep our eyes open, we're going to see more yeah. of this in Gene Wolfe. Well, certainly we're going to get you know many many of the issues that you've just 
uh, found in this story are going to come up again in the book of the long sun when we meet father. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, definitely. So now let's talk Freud here for a moment. Um, I'm going to excuse myself. I'll call you go, go ahead and talk to yourself Sorry. about Freud. I'll be back. I'm going to get another bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be done by the time you get back. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're given this um, sense of Joe's death wish or the death death drive or death instinct. I'm I'm a hobbyist when it comes to Freud. So uh, please, well, listeners, dear Fro- listeners. Freud was a hobbyist when it comes to Freud. <laughs> That's true. Um, please let me know if there's anything wonky about what I'm, I'm about to go into. Uh, but my understanding of the death drive and the death instinct is is that it's not just a thing that exists on its own, um, but it's something that is um, always put in contrast uh, to the opposite drive which is eros so you have like eros and and thanatos you have the the drive to love and to reproduce and to create and that is always at odds with this death drive this story is could not be more uh like a direct representation of that and so i i just you know given that maybe we have this definition of we have the new life that joe created we have his drive to self-destruct um putting those kind of giving that context to the story would what would you do say to make that more clear thematically than having it kind of just come in at the end it's kind of there it from the beginning but it's no, but you're right at the it's end not... of the story it's that this is the theme this is the morality mm-hmm. tale choose eros choose loving your child and yeah. staying with your wife instead of buying a pack of smokes and driving across the country uh, which is right, you know, yeah. ki- kind of what's going on here. What I, I don't know if I have a real question here, but this is clearly a morality tale in my view. Yeah, and so I just would love to hear your thoughts about maybe the approach to this death drive. If you were going to clean up this story, let's put on our pretend sure. editor hats. Yeah, yeah. How would you? How would you try to clean? up some of this mess. Yeah, so I think you, you point to something that's 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 really problematic with the story which is that um this Freudian explanation and it's really kind of a a Freudian eucatastrophe that happens or it almost deus ex machina in that Joe's robot mother sort of shows up um you know with at the end here in this fight scene with an explanation for the story that we've just read right. and Joe just kind of quietly receives heart healing wisdom from it, and and, it's, and he's mean at robot to robots in the, the whole of the story. time. Yeah. yeah, and so it really did feel like um, uncharacteristically of Wolf that that there's this this just heavy handed explanation at the end as opposed to having things peppered throughout. I mean, I think that most people we know who we've tried to give Gene Wolfe to who haven't liked it, one of the things they haven't liked about it is that it's not clear enough, right? That right. the meaning is not as heavy handed as in fact they would like. Here it was extraordinarily heavy handed in a way that was very surprising uh to see for Wolf, but also um was not good storytelling. Um, and so I think to get to your question here of, of, of how, you know, if I were editing the story or, or were, were writing the story, you know, what would I have done differently? 
I mean, I think my first my first instinct is to just not write the story at all. But that's a that's a smart Alec answer and doesn't really get right because so we've all written the story. All, so, the story's already written, yeah. so it doesn't do anything productive. <laughs> but but I guess what I'm I'm just trying to kind of sarcastically point out that I'm not sure I've got a good answer, Brandon. Um, yeah, that it's I, so so tough that um, um, I guess I and maybe it's maybe it's feeling tough to me because I kind of just disagree with you know I don't think that Freud is the, a good the way to is view a real the world. Problem, here. yeah. Um, mixing Freud with this technological advancement and 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 this kind of Oedipal theme, yeah, uh, underneath, along with the death drive and death instinct, yeah. and and kind of cramming it all into one story, right? Um, I think in some ways, probably here's what I would have done that would have been a Freudian thing to do that might have that would have would have worked. I don't know. It would have amused me more anyway. I don't. I hesitate to say worked better, but that the I don't like that the. The resolution that that of of Joe's anger and 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 his motivation now to go heal his heart comes from uh, his mother preventing him from doing violence. I I would have liked that. I would have liked this story better if what what had happened is that he that there was no vandal going on in the story. That this was a story about how he met his robot mother and had a conversation about all the anxieties and fear. And anger. Well, she his had mother's still alive, and that's part of the problem. Right. One. Yes. She, the he could actually go have that conversation with her. Right. right. So one, he needs to kind of either create a conflict with his mother yeah. that he's thinking about throughout the story instead of the pregnancy, that this kind of resolves that conflict. Mm-hmm. Because the other conflicts he's having aren't conflicts that are resolved. What's resolved in this story is uh, it's a lesson for the audience, not for Joe. So I, here's here's what I think how I think I would have gone about it, and, and just kind of riffing off of what you just said, if he was going to go that route with the story, you would have had to have a dead mother, which is a classic sure, storytelling device. That would have been an easy thing. I was surprised actually when a point was made uh, that Joe's mother was still alive, right? And Joe could sit down and kind of he's the only one in the exhibit and kind of go to the quiet floor, right, and, and talk, talk to, to this his woman yeah. about a way he. In a way, he he can't talk to his living mom for some conflict, right? You know, and so we get that conflict, Another and that could have been do, fun there too for yeah. for us as the audience to know it's robot mom, but for Joe to never know that might have been and a Joe fun doesn't trick. It out because yeah. Joe's kind of dumb throughout this. Joe's kind of dumb, yeah, yeah. So that would have been that would have been an interesting move to me. Is that he believes it's kind of his real younger mother who's who's also got this characteristic to pass on to him that he kind of missed. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go the vandal route and the kind of threat route, which which doesn't work because the we're not we don't care enough about the structure to have it threatened being meaningful. Yeah, I didn't care at all. Um, yeah. So I, it was like fine, if, like like Lamarck can just put his hand in the and, and this is this is characteristic of a young writer as well. Something I am occasionally guilty of. Um, you try to overexplain things that happen. Lamarck's hand is missing. Well, he can just go put it in the hand thing and get a new hand, yep. you know? Um, and so we're, we're like, there's no consequences here. We, the consequences removed from these actions. Um, they find him. And because we know there's more work to be done on this structure, um, we f- like, they find Joe at the end and they're like, Oh, there he is. And like, there's no consequences here to the damage done to the structure by, by the vandal. One thing you should have done is had the first, robot created in Joe's image be an ancestor like you know I think a primitive father like something that's like early that just represents the rage in Joe that is not Joe and then you have the scene with the mother urging him to to kill the father which is a little bit more in line with this kind of storytelling 
but that also kind of kills the the anger in him. He's able to represent his him his own attitude externally and defeat it. And that would have been a lot more satisfying to me as well. Yeah, I could see I could see I could see kind of any of those ideas working very well. Um I'm I'm while you were sort of you know giving us kind of your version of this, something that occurred to me, you know, I I in the recap mentioned that I was a little puzzled about robot mother sending him off to go fight the vandal. You of course pointed out the the Oedipal, uh hook there. Um but it occurs to me now that are we meant to understand as readers that that ro- his robot mother knows that the only way Joe can heal is to confront the robot version of himself, and so she's spurring that forward. I think it's to confront the death drive, and this is why it feels so muddled to me. We're working with two really distinct Freudian ideas. Yeah. Um, And rather than choose one to kind of explore, Mm -hmm. we're given two, and they both kind of fall short. Yeah. And the death drive story is the one that wins because we need a moral. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I agree, and it just it, in, the, in the end, it just didn't work. So I think there's some there's several lessons that we can take from this. So I think one is also actually you know you know pick one thing that you're trying to do and do that well. There might be too much going on here. And, in this and story. I've read I've read advice that that Wolf has given a writer. You know, just kind of reading about him, he said a short story can be about one idea, maybe two max. And this is probably about four things. It is. And and we're I know we've got coming up even just in the next few episodes, we've got some very short stories um that where not a lot happens and that have really kind of one bit of focus. So I think we're right. I think coming up we're in for some tighter, more focused uh stories that sort of more heavily themed, uh that will perhaps like resolve resolve the conflict of the story in a way that sort of makes more sense uh to, to the themes. Uh, and I'm definitely looking forward to that because uh, it, what's been fun about this project is uh, you and I are both so familiar with his masterpieces to kind of learn the marks of the craft uh, and, and his kind of personal marks of craftsmanship that he puts on his work. It's eye-opening. It's revealing. And it's it's a lot. It's encouraging to young writers as I am. Uh, I mean, Glenn, you've been writing a little bit longer than me. Um, but it's really encouraging to see like one, um, try to get published. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's okay. It's okay. Like, and just keep writing, but take it like, right. You know, like this is, cl- this is in my mind, this is very clearly something you might've written five years or six years before it was published in his early thirties, but he sold a hit story before. And so maybe, you know, have a trunk before you start that's right, to publish that's right. your first story. That's right. Also, well, I promise you, Brandon, it's going to get better than this in the the weeks <laughs> yeah. to come. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, and I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of House of Ancestors, and and please take that first paragraph. Write a little bit of flash fiction for us. We'd love to see it. Yeah, I really want to see this. So listeners, I do hope you'll take us up on that offer. Uh, Next time, we'll be covering the story, The Changeling, which you can find in the collection, Gene Wolfe's Castle of Days. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.